word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. Today, that would be through chapter 50 of Dark Age by Pierce Brown. If you don't know about the skittering things that crawl in the dark, you shouldn't be listening to this. Cross. Hey there, this is PJ. And I hate you. And we are <laughs> Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. Once again, we are uh, taking the intoxicating part of this to the extreme a little bit in that uh, we just spent an hour with some friends doing a fantasy football draft and I was drinking the entire time. So, we are uh, hitting it with a head start, and yeah, we're we're gonna have some fun. For some reason, I feel less drunk than I did last week, though. And last week, I hadn't drunk anything before actually recording. So, which is so funny because we both commented on how like we felt just weirdly energetic was, and like out of sorts. It was a goofy energy. It was a lot of fun though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a good time. We've got. A lot to talk about. We we kind of mentioned this in our, our Devil's Cut, of course, but this is the most notes that we've ever had for any episode yep. ever. Yep. It is a, a, th- a thick one, if you will. You're inside baseball. We normally do eight to nine pages of notes. We're at 11 to almost 12, like just barely dodging that 12 page cut. And I yep. cut a couple of questions last minute just to... <laughs> sneak it in there <laughs> but since we have so much to go through before we do anything else let's talk about what we're drinking what are you having i am having a cocktail called made in france it is one ounce of cognac one ounce of sweet vermouth half an ounce of benedictine um stirred and um strained into a i've got a little kind of i don't know how to describe it You can see the picture of it on our website because I have like six weeks of (laughs) pictures to post on the website. I need to do that. Um, See, if you just keep making the same stuff that's already on the website, then you you never have to post pictures. There you go. It says Um, me. Um, But stirred, strained into a glass, and then uh, finished with a lemon wedge or lemon lemon twist. I found it a little bit dull, so I actually added like a couple drops of absinthe after the fact and um i'm enjoying it a lot better but it it's got a little bit of sweetness to it specifically from all of these ingredients are sweet like cognac sweet vermouth and benedictine all have some inherent sweetness to them but especially with the addition of the absinthe the most you get from it is like sweet herbal and it's good I don't know if I'd make it again, though. I don't know. It, it, it's just kind of lacking on all fronts. It's decent, but it, I, I don't know how to describe it other than sweet herbal and just kind of dull in general. But that's not what I really want to talk about. I talked about this on uh, on our patron discord a little bit. I have so many goddamn barrel age bottles <laughs> dating back to like 2011. Like I have... Some 10-year-old bottles in my in my cellar 
that I really need to start drinking because they're getting way too old. Um, and that said, the one that I picked out today is actually from 2018. So it's only three years old, but, um, from the brewery it's PB and Thursday. So it is an Imperial barrel aged out aged in bourbon barrels. And, um, it says peanut flavor added. I would like, I would posit a guess and say that the peanut flavor is PB two, which is a uh, powdered hmm. peanut butter. Interesting. Um, alternative that's that's what you is used really really often within the brewing industry when you're making peanut butter stouts because it doesn't have oil in it and oils and peanut butter when added to beer completely fuck with a lot of the sort of um specifically the head retention with the with the carbonation but also just kind of the the flavors and the thickness of the beer itself and there's a lot that kind of comes from having oils added to the beer in general. This, I don't know if it's just from from aging for a few years. Uh, peanut butter doesn't tend to be something that lingers for a long time or develops over time. It just kind of falls off. So I'm guessing that's part of the problem, but it's really light on the peanut butter. It's a little bit thin for a Russian Imperial from what I'm usually looking for, uh, but the bourbon comes out really nicely and it, it drinks really well. It's... Uh, let's see. 19.7% alcohol by volume. So it's a pretty heavy hitter, but the brewery's barrel aged stuff tends to be high like that. Overall solid. I wish I would have had it new. I do have another bottle of this, so I'll probably, uh, I'll probably use that as part of a, like a tasting night or something. If I have some people over. Overall, decent. I don't think I'd buy it again for myself unless it was brand new and freshly brewed, freshly released for the for the peanut butter aspect of it just kind of falling off. Point is, I've got I've got six cases of of these like large format bottles of barrel aged beers that I've been mm-hmm. sitting on. Um, so going forward, I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into into the the tasting notes and the specific styles of the beers that I'm drinking. So I'm going to kind of focus on those ones a little bit. Cool. That's so exciting. And also I think, you know, for a lot of people, I think that it will be really, really great um, to kind of get exposed to it. I mean, obviously beer, beer culture is kind of a, a um, pervasive thing, but it's something you've been a part of uh, since before you could really legally drink, you know? So I don't know what you're talking about. I Sorry, my bad. I'm um, a very legal person. No, I, I started homebrewing at 19. Yeah, so right. We did that. Yep, we did that together. And I just <laughs> turned just it into an it. actual yeah. uh, career for a while. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yep. So very cool, very exciting, and very excited for you to talk about more of these and then also share some with you soon. So yep. we'll definitely talk a lot more about this, I'm sure. Crossland. Yes. What have you got for us? Well, I've been talking it up for a bit now, right? We've been talking about this old punk whiskey. First I've heard of it. What are you talking about? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So what I did is I made an old punk smoked honey sour with a sweet vermouth kind of float right on top. Um, It is very good. 
So part of part of my um, issue with not issue, one of the things that I really enjoy about the old punk is that it's actually it's not it's not pumpkin spice flavored, but it is flavored with pumpkin and other spices. So it it doesn't it has kind of a a um, rich earthier taste to it, which actually comes through and it makes for like a very good straight drinking whiskey very very well rounded and so i was like okay well this would probably go really well with kind of the the smoked honey um sour that i've made previously and i kind of messed around with it a little bit i was like there's there's this like weird it's got this like weird bitter when i mixed in um the smoked honey that wasn't quite working for me and so i've been trying to dial it in over the my last couple of attempts of making this and i finally found that with just a little bit of sweet vermouth um, it just rounded out the whole cocktail and made something that was really, really delicious. So this um, thank you, Lindsay, for the old punk. Um, and this cocktail is unstoppable. So old punk from Corsair distilling out of Ten- Tennessee. Very, very good. Nice. Oh, ratio is kind of a uh, so it's two ounces of the old punk um, one or two tablespoons of the smoked honey sour. Uh, one of tonic. So you shake all that together, one of tonic, and then sweep remove to top. So, so the smoked honey sour, is that what what is a sour mix made with smoked honey? Yeah, honey so it's smoked, sour smoked mix honey and lime, smoked? basically. Okay. Yeah. So it is, what it is, is it is a, so I've got a smoked honey syrup that I made. So okay. that, the honey is smoked. And then okay. I mix that with sour, which is really, in this case, just lime um, and a little bit of uh, just kind of traditional, like just a tiny bit of simple syrup, mostly water. So it's a little bit on the water, you know, to make a sour mix. It's traditional. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. Nice. Yeah. My brain, brain fried. But at this Very point, nice. it's one of those things where I just have it in my fridge and whenever I need more, I just make more. So, like, I never think about the recipe until I have to pull it out. Um but that's gotcha. a fair point. Probably should have defined that because I'd, yep. I'd like to try that sometime. It sounds good. Yeah. And then to follow that up, I'm having a new anthem hooked up in stitches, which is a double IPA with Strata, Citra and Vic Secret hops. It is delicious. Okay. It is a 9.7 alcohol by volume, though. No, that's a heavy one. It's, it's got uh, less than half of what I'm drinking. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair that is <laughs> fair and valid how's it how's it drinking oh it drinks really clean like it it is one of the things that i love about there are two things that i really love about new anthem the first is that they frequently turn over um taps and that they are constantly trying new things with ipas to mess with kind of their their core formula the second thing that i really like about new anthem is everything is themed off of uh like 90s culture movement and so every single beer is named after a song title or a lyric which is great yeah just kind of fun fun thing to do but they so it it just drinks very clean it's got a nice like uh a little bit of a bitter back end you can tell that the vic secret are dry hopped okay it seems it's good if i drink too much of it we're not going to finish this episode so you're telling me all right uh should we should we (laughs) mosey on forward then perhaps um with that let's get into last week's predictions there's really only one to talk about here and that is relating to ephraim from last week so uh you basically just made a statement so you want to read your statement 
I think he makes it, but in the same way that Jack Burton makes it, gets knocked down, finally gets up, ready to fight, only to find the battle done. We just kind of jump to back on the ranch after the after the battle. We don't really know, you know? Well, we, we know enough, right, that, like, he wasn't deemed a threat, and so they basically just got him out of harm's way. I think that you're actually fairly He didn't close. get knocked down. He actually didn't get knocked down at all. No, no. Right. Right. But he did, like, jump down. He was holding up the mop. He had his grab boots on and then, you know, proceeded to not be considered a threat to the robots versus all of the obsidians that were wearing full armor and charging and everything yeah. else. So not not shot at on sight um, like everyone else that was, you know, going for the mines. Yeah. So, so I'll drink for that. Good call. All right. So with that. Let's get into the chapters. Uh, so we start with chapter 44, which is Ephraim, Hunt of Last Light. And we just talked about this literally just a little bit, but we start the week on kind of something that I really love. I think it's a wonderful note that the Obsidians have limit, uh, liberated Samaria, which is great. Of course, this continent uh, that Darrow's from originally, as well as Lyria. And they've made it their Volkland. The old tribe, the old tribe now has territory. They're a big deal on Mars. They've got, you know, a whole continent basically that's theirs. They're reclaiming the mines and protecting their territory. It's kind of a, a fantastic start to this new obsidian empire. I, I felt like it was a really great change of pace. There's still sort of this bustling population, but with that victory, they're kind of just building. They're not necessarily or explicitly pushing towards or preparing for war like they're they're just mm-hmm. establishing themselves and they're they're going forward with what they feel like will be their home for an indefinite amount of time so that it was it was a fun little change in energy yeah i mean and it's also something that you know we've we've been talking about for at length and ad nauseum and it's good for them to have this you know, place that they can really kind of prove themselves that they've been worthy of society, you know, for a very long time. And mm-hmm. I think that they've got a good plan, you know, to handle it for the most part. Until all that gets shit on, but, you know, they had a good plan. Yeah. <laughs> so as a part of Ephraim's contract, he, of course, wanted a ship. And boy, did he get a beautiful one. I love how it's described as, you know, something that was liberated from Quicksilver, of course, because everything that's very fancy and nice is stolen from Quicksilver, <laughs> the universe's wealthiest man. But I, I love that despite its green hue, he also names it Snowball, nonetheless, uh, in, in the same term of endearment affection that he uses for Volga. Right. So um, I felt like it was really cool that this happened before he learned about like Volga's importance to the Obsidian people in general. Oh, yeah. I guess that's sort of a a function of me reading this multiple, multiple times in prepping for this uh, show is that like when I'm writing these sent like these answers, like notes out, it's on my final read through of them. Typically, so it's like, oh, yeah, this is really interesting because it's before he learns that. And that doesn't necessarily track that well. Um, but what it does do is it proves how important she is in a very concrete way to him. Um, mm-hmm. He's mentioned it and he's talked about it and we've kind of seen her importance to him. But this is an actual concrete thing and he doesn't explain it. He doesn't talk about it. So it's all just for him. Mm-hmm. It's just him attributing this to her. And uh, naming it for her without 
giving a reason for it later or to, to anybody else. So it, it's, it concretes his true like friendship with her, her, his love for her in a way. Yeah. It, it definitely solidifies that relationship and makes it real. And kind of like you said, I mean, I, I don't think that it's invalid for you to be like, oh, after rereading it, I've got all of these additional you know points and perspectives and blah, blah, blah. That's I mean, you're digging into the theme, right? Like it it is it's it's an important thing to notice that, you know, he does kind of name this snowball. And that is before kind of the changeover of the I, I wouldn't say that the whole obsidian, of course, knows the importance of Volga. I would say that it's probably, you know, a kind of tight lipped secret. Yeah, but I, I yeah. didn't mean that it was the the whole of the obsidian found her to be important, but that she is important to the whole of the obsidian, whether they know it or not. That makes sense. Yeah. And it's it's such a nice, such a nice ship. You know, we, we yeah. spend most of this. Um, most of this, the rest of this chapter on the ship, looking down from it at the kind of hunt as it's happening. I, I love the reason as well that we talked about right off the bat at the beginning of the episode with uh, the prediction. But I love that Ephraim survived because the software determined that he wasn't a threat because he was just a, a naked gray dude holding a mop with boots on. And that he's kind of given this status as like this totem of walking in vulnerability because he like the the towers wouldn't shoot him as though he was some kind of god um these are quicksilver's robots correct if they were possessed by the golds or programmed by the golds do you think they'd have that same sort of bit of programming where it assesses a threat level before taking action because i feel like they would just assess for intention or like wh- whether or not they are assaulting the area, so take out everybody that's assaulting the area. Well, golds don't use robots. I, <laughs> yeah, that's true. But <laughs> but if they did, applying the philosophy, do you think they would change the sort of philosophy of the program? I I think applying the the philosophy of golds. They would probably do what they said uh, that kind of Ephraim even commented on, which was partially because he was a gray. It didn't shoot as well. And I think that that would likely be, you know, some version of something because I don't think unless they're aggressing, you know, intent, like you said, mm-hmm. would be kind of the the stake. But then again, like if OK, if you're if you're a computer and you know that you can shoot, shoot 30 rounds a minute and you've got an obsidian that's a giant threat and has negative intent, and you've got a dude holding a mop with intent and you know that it's going to take you 28 rounds to get through that obsidian and you're going to have to take time to go between aiming at the two you probably just kill the obsidian like you can you can see the logical programming i I absolutely absolutely see the logic in it i'm just i'm more curious like is this is that a flaw in the way that quicksilver had the programming written or is it more practical than that. And I think there's some practicality to it. Like you mentioned, the sort of prioritization of um, expenditure of resources. Like they, they're they not going to have unlimited am- ammunition. They're going to have to pick and choose who they shoot towards. So yeah, it makes sense to prioritize. And I, I think that along that same line, kind of like we were saying uh, is if, if the golds were in charge, they would just have obsidian standing there or grays, you know, like that. And that training is going to be baked into them that you kill whoever is here. Right. Might not be as efficient, but 
But they also have the resources to just throw as many of them at <laughs> at them as possible, you know? Correct. The bodies can pile up under the weight of the Empire, and that's not a problem. Mm-hmm. But, of course, the core of this chapter actually isn't just a reflection on the results of the previous raid. It's also a chapter about a great and magnificent hunt that the kids and the Valkyrie have been on since the very victory itself. I, I think that Sefi is very smart to brought the kids out for their own reasonings and helping kind of manage them as well. Besides treating them like hostages, she's always cared for the kids throughout the whole journey. You know what I mean? Like, there's, there's been a little bit of, of kind of back and forth, but she has... She's never gone so far as to intentionally try to harm the children. I don't know if I can agree with that because simply because of the one example of how callously and coldly she like let Pax know about the death of his mother. That's not like that's not I'm saying the harm, no, but like but that is when you're talking about a 10 year old kid, that is traumatic and like psychologically harming potentially maybe she sees pax as a threat you know but but she explicitly says when confronted by ephraim at that point something along the lines of i'm not here to take care of them it's a fair point but now she is like leaning into that a little bit yeah you know i I think there's some growth there and i think there's some some development there but i uh, to say that she cared about them the entire journey i think is a little bit of a stretch yeah and i'm not i guess i'm i'm not saying like they aren't just jailed they aren't in a box or a prison like they were underneath the syndicate yeah that's that's true um she's using them like hostages but she's not necessarily holding them like prisoners they're more like chess pieces that she has in her hand you know than and that calls back to later on where ephraim just says we're literally all just chess pieces oh i forgot about that (laughs) yeah fair point who's who's he talking to when he says that is that to to sefi Oh, when, to Sefi, when he's, okay, yeah. When yeah. Sefi's talking about Volga. Yeah, okay, right, right at the end. Got it. Or I, I, I think he, I think that might be internal. Yes, I think it might be I'm an pretty internal sure monologue. But it is the actual, actual like, chess piece phrase, but. Yes. Man, I, I really, I really appreciate Sefi and what she's kind of, like, given, she's, in a way, she's also opened up the children to us, right? Like, we've actually gotten to know the kids a lot better through Ephraim and through Sefi, and we've gotten to know Obsidian culture through these kind of uh, very unique lenses. And I, I think that now she's starting to come around to the idea of like taking better care of them. And we, we have a lot more to talk about, of course, when Electra kind of breaks down the way that she thinks that the eventual trade of children will go. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that it's not a perfect treatment, but it's certainly better than imprisonment, yeah. you know? I mean, I, my immediate thought is something... Something like, but not exactly like, um, oh God, what's his name? Theon, Theon Greyjoy in Game of Thrones as, Mm. as sort of a ward of the Stark family. He's, he's a prisoner technically, but he's treated like a family member almost. I, I, I don't think that's a perfect comparison, but that's, that's the immediate sort of thought that jumps out at me. I like, I I mean, does that track or am I missing something? No, I think that it follows. Um, There's actually, so maybe this is worth clarifying a little bit. I have known and had forgotten about a phrase that was used uh, by Robert Jordan in a number of interviews when people would come up and like ask him about the next book that was going to come out in the series. He wrote, he was writing the Wheel of Time um, at the time. And 
people would ask him things about like future books as they would be coming out. And he just had a short phrase, which was read and find out. And it was supposed to be a phrase that was like not supposed to be negative or condescending, but instead being like, you know, I don't want to either misset your expectations. He was kind of like team no hyping it in a way. Like, I don't want to misset your expectations. I don't want to adjust. I don't want to lie. I don't want to, you know, so yeah, PJ Raffo. Fair enough. Read, read and find out. I got it. <laughs> I, I, I put that together. Crossley. <laughs> I may be an idiot, but I'm not that much of an idiot. Wait, you're an idiot. Mm. I don't know, man. <laughs> read and find out. <laughs> read and find out. Read what your Twitter feed. No way. What, what, Twitter, what Twitter feed? <laughs> exactly. That's, um, yep. Point, point Crossland. All right. So, Xenophon and Ephraim spend a lot of time together over the course of this chapter and even I would say this, you know, this half of this section that we're reading this week, reflecting on the risk kind of that Sefi is taking in hunting the dragon as the head of state. What do you make of her decision to go on the hunt as well as her involvement in the government um, and kind of her choice between maintaining ritual and continuity of government? Uh, I, I think that decision was completely born out of the same reasoning that she took the the blood gamble with Ephraim. She doesn't want to send people to her deaths or to their deaths with, um, without being there to fight with them. I, I think it's a similar philosophy that Darrow has with his men and his armies, basically just giving it all and, and being on the front lines as much as he possibly can whenever he has the opportunity to do so. I, I think more than anything, she wants to be somebody who puts their money where their mouth is and leads by example rather than just sending people off to do whatever she says. Yeah, I I think that that makes sense. And that, you know, kind of leading, like you said, leading by example, I think is obviously a big case and just making sure that she's also seen as not just a figurehead, you know, do as I say, not as I do. And she's totally doing so that you would also still believe in her for the same reasons. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think that that's that's all good and fine and a good idea. What do you think about the hunt as a, as a whole? Hundred. God, it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> I I love diving into these like mythical carved creatures that are here. But also their their whole ritual around it was really interesting. But yeah, it was it was just exhilarating, and and the tension was high throughout the entire thing, and it was a fun thing to read. Yeah, it is definitely a fun section for sure. We'll we'll definitely talk a little bit more specifically about the dragons and stuff like that. But I I really love this book's very clear and intent focus on diving into obsidian culture obsidian ritual even the difference between obsidian tribes um talking a little bit later about like Aaliyah's tribe a little bit and where you know ragnar and Steffi came from we we obviously get a presentation of the askamani which is a completely different tribe um maybe even two different askamanis in a way but there's there's a lot here kind of passed back and forth so it's it's really, really great to kind of see, I don't know, see a lot of this kind of come to life. Like we, we've always gotten whispers of this kind of stuff in the background of a lot of the original trilogy and a little bit in Iron Gold. 
but now to like be just submerged in it is awesome mm-hmm I really love the fact that we've talked about kind of, you know, leaning into that, that we've talked about like beasts and dragons on the ice previously, but it seemed like it could have been like a myth that they were talking about. Like they were talking about in the distance is like not real. They're like, oh, the sea creatures underneath the ice. And, it, you know, it could have been it could have been something else, as they always said. But we find here that the black Nidhogger Drake is very, very real. We also get like a little tidbit about the stains that I like. The path that the stains is gained by drinking the blood of these Drake's eggs, which is interesting. That's the start because you have to crawl into one of these caves where one of these Drake's is and steal one of the the eggs. Drink the blood. Jeez. Yeah. But yeah, what do you, what about the dragon? What about the beasts? What do you think? Uh, I feel like they mentioned it pretty early on that these beasts were the work, work of like high level carvers. Oh, yeah. And we're totally. like created as a means of keeping the obsidian isolated and on the poles. Yeah, but there's always uh, yes. And <laughs> there have been mentions of these things, but not so explicitly. Right. There have been talks that there were like that they created. And the reason that they chose the poles was to keep them kind of constrained and to give them like artificial food shortages so that they couldn't like rise up and then coming back and taking them. And obviously that's like the management of the gods as well. You know, back in book three Asgard, it's called Asgard. Duh. So that whole section is very reminiscent of that. And they do, they do make mention that they like created creatures, but they never so explicitly go into the details. And it always feels like it maybe could have been. There was the sea monster that like almost eats Ragnar, right? Or does he eat Ragnar? No, it, he he lives from that. He He's, does live from gets that. skewered by. Live from that. But yeah, there, there is the sea monster, right? That's that's the one that we have before this. That's mm-hmm. the only one that we okay. have before this. So I think that was kind of my my thought. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like just the existence of that proves that they're not just fairy tales, and I I had no hmm. no inclination that anything that was being said was strictly unfounded myth. Gotcha. Okay. You're just into it. You you just believe. I mean, yeah. You a believer, BJ? What's been what's been a lie so far as far as I don't as know, those some go. characters deaths? Well, yeah, but <laughs> kidding. Good <of> point. <laughs> Good point. Um, but but to me I feel like there there are like these various components that are like the golds are prolific liars and have been for the obsidians, have been to the obsidians for a very long time, you know? So Mm-hmm. It it to me feels like that there's there's got to be some things obviously that they were told that were false you know the whole Asgard situation like I made mention of is obviously a false example or a true example of that falsehood. Genuinely, so. I would totally believe, and I think it would be the right move if I were the people making the decisions, and if I were like the leaders of the gold people isolating the obsidian to create mm-hmm. these monsters and not tell them about it. So then the myths come naturally. Yeah, that would time. be the move. That's a good time. That's a good good point. So like that way those, it's not like you're... Those myths are born from the obsidian themselves as opposed to... I have been saying born from constantly. <laughs> I don't know why. Like, it, it is just for whatever reason in like rattling around in my brains and I keep saying it. So I apologize. <laughs> 
rattling around in this here them brains, them <laughs> their here brains. It it do a rattle is so it, rattly. It, it be doing a rattle at this point. It be a rattle. <laughs> I totally feel you, though, because I repeat the same phrases all the time. And when I go Damn back it. at it, I'm like, this is the third time. Shut the fuck up. I haven't said that <laughs> without it being intentional for a while. Uh, but I digress. So the ensuing hunt is an incredibly dangerous gambit that Sefi is taking on. <laughs> uh no, but actually, <laughs> obviously, I worked that in just for you, just buffing that right in there, that little gambit <laughs> inside that line. But the the dragon makes short work of a number of the Valkyrie and the Griffins, vivisecting one of them uh, the before you know being secured to the ground. Steffi draws back her bow to kill the Drake, of course, but is struck, frozen. Pax is almost killed by the dragon. Everything appears to have gone wrong. What do you think happened? Was it the string that Pax didn't protect or something more sinister? Obviously, we, we get kind of a, a firmer answer to this a little bit later, but I, I think that maybe we could even we could stretch the question just a little bit further and say, was it to make it look like it could have been Pax's fault to blame it on Pax? Um, oh, that's a good question. I don't think so. And okay. the reason why is because Later on, Sefi talks about how it, it's intermittent and at times she just can't deal with the pain and can't mm-hmm. go farther and like loses some strength. And she doesn't strike me as it, it didn't strike me as that was her intention because she doesn't immediately like blame him for it. Yeah. I think if if she was setting him up for failure, she would uh, jump on the on the bandwagon of blaming Pax for it, and she doesn't. She just kind of lets that happen. She doesn't correct them and doesn't admit her problem, but she doesn't she doesn't like pile on. So for that reason, I don't think she was setting him up for it. I think that in the moment before we know about her actual like necrosis, what would you call it? Disease. Yeah, it's. I, I think necrosis is a good word for it. I I was on board with Ephraim's idea that like this wasn't Pax. This was something something wrong with Sefi. He he knows Pax well enough to know that he wouldn't just forget something like that. Which I mean, that was confirmed obviously later on in the reading. Like we've been saying, I think in general, like I, I think this is some sort of mole. This is some sort of Askamani mole that's uh taken down Sefi from the inside. And we'll we'll I know for a fact we're going to get way farther into this later on, so I'll leave it at that for now. <laughs> you've you've got a whole conspiracy that takes up like an entire it's page. It's not a conspiracy. It's absolutely <laughs> true. When, Regardless, right, PJ, right, it's always right. going to be hear, fun. Hear me out. Let me <laughs> let me ask this question, just about conspiracies in general. Conspiracies, not a question, I guess. Conspiracies are just like, uh, s- s- like subterfuge and lies and like secret secret motivations that are like beyond or uh, underneath the general like knowledge of things, right? Like, it doesn't have to be something... Yeah, outside of regular purview, I would say. Yeah. So, like, 
yes, I guess this would be a conspiracy, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. I also think that the definition of conspiracy is very far stretched because it, literally a conspiracy could be you you can conspire to murder someone, right? It's an yeah. agreement to like commit a crime you can, you can or be, a secret plan. You can be charged for conspiracy for conspiracy to murder or conspiracy to com- commit a crime even. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, obviously the scene with the dragon is very intense and it it really like everything is going wrong. They're pulling back the string. The the bow obviously isn't firing. Uh, we've got Freyhield f- hacking away at the dragon. Obviously, the only place that we know, as we know, is that it's weak is underneath the eyes. Uh, Ephraim is at first kind of denounced for grabbing a gun by the obsidians that are around him, but eventually Valdir approves it and says, "Yes, take take the shot." Um, gives him a rifle. He the optics not having enough time to boot up he just fucking blunt like he just does it basically on the scope which is amazing charges up the rifle takes the shot two hands with two hands of space above Freyhild, and kills the dragon just love love this scene love that execution it's got that kind of tense feel uh, there there's a, a scene this is such a weird poll um have you seen the league of extraordinary gentlemen no okay so it, it's an okay movie. I definitely enjoyed it a lot as a kid. It kind of hits all the comic booky notes for me and was was a fun time. But there's a scene near the end of the movie in which Tom Sawyer pulls out a gun uh, to... And yeah, that Tom Sawyer, by the way. Like, not... No joke. Um, the so song Tom by Sawyer, Rush? No. No, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> I was thinking the book. <laughs> no, of course you're thinking about the book. The, the song by Rush is talking about the book. Yeah, but like, there's... I don't know. It is that it is Tom Sawyer. It's, it's the same Tom Sawyer either way. Yeah, but he, but he's making himself out to be a Tom Sawyer. He's like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm a Tom Sawyer. I'm a mean, mean. Anyway, it's um, great. Great song. Anyway, in in the movie, he pulls out the rifle, kind of calling back to an earlier scene when he wasn't able to make a very long shot, and they're running across the snow. And he remembers what uh, Sean Connery's character tells him at the very beginning of the movie flashes and he knows to pull up the rifle to account for the drop. And it just reminds me of that same kind of intensity is like everything is going wrong and you just get this kind of slow moment of contemplation from his perspective looking down the scope. And it's it's reminiscent of that to me. Mm -hmm. I, I particularly appreciate, of course, the line that's said after the fact, after, you know, the celebration with Freyhield where she says a poacher's gun is not a poacher's heart. And I think that there's a lot to talk about between everything that I just spewed. So <laughs> feel yeah. free. I think it's pretty admirable, admirable that they uh, were able to kind of put aside the traditions and the, uh, the customs and still con- congratulate him on his decision-making. Mm-hmm. He, he took a huge risk. And he's asked if uh, what what would have happened if he had hit, missed and hit Sefi, and he basically just remarks and says that he probably wouldn't be here to answer that question if he had. Mm-hmm. So he was fully aware of the stakes and fully aware of the consequences of missing. And honestly, this was a risk that I'm surprised he took, having not been on Zolodon. You would think he'd have more self-preservation yeah i well i think he's also thinking about it as self-preservation in a way right like 
or at the very maybe maybe self-preservation is the wrong word but he's also thinking about pax and pax's life and, and things of yeah. that nature so There's that that's true i think it's i think it's all crossing his mind we haven't even made mention of electra being down there as well but that's she's down there right am i losing my mind wasn't she on um, griffin i think so i can't remember it doesn't come yeah. up that much so i can't remember mm-hmm. yeah it it is it is a fairly remarkable quote though i think just because it does call out to kind of the the sort of that that split second decision making which is something that Sefi initially revered him for as well and that's why i think he got brought in in the first place was to kind of teach those you know bring that add that to the the volk as it is do you have any favorite part of the uh, dragon deconstruction <laughs> i really i like the little ceremony that surrounds it i like kind of the uh, electra like jumping into the organs Pax <laughs> having to go collect a bunch of like livers and shit for this <laughs> card <laughs> like there's there's just so much good stuff i think the the one that sticks out to me as an obvious answer to this question and just off the top of my head are the uh, the testicles no <laughs> And the fact that they possess psychotropic properties and uh, because of that, they just get burned. And I'm I'm curious what Xenophon thinks of that. Uh, is it Xenophon or is it Osgard? Osgard takes the berries. Osgard. If that's, yeah. I, I For whatever reason, I always get them, them confused. And regardless, um, I actually thought they were spirit berries or like the source of spirit berries. In my in my initial like thought while I was reading through this, but it seems like that's not the case. No, they're they're used for berserkers. Uh, I think that that's even sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but they're they're still hallucinogenics, and I, I was I was curious if spirit berries were additionally. Oh yeah, like yeah, where they came from, produ- if they were the produced kind of- from this, and that I don't think is the case, or it would have been it. mentioned. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, the fact that they had to immediately burn the testicles, I found funny. Definitely want to get rid of that. Obviously, that's a negative part of their culture. And we do actually see some very odd berserkers a little bit later. But yep. yeah, man, what a what a little scene. I love that Electra just like jumps into the organs, though, and is like covered in blood. Like, <laughs> does not give a shit. <laughs> Clearly Severo's kid. I, I really enjoy Ephraim's reflection during the sun death party as well. He compares his mind in Hyperion with that of being on the ice caps, saying that th- there the current demands you do something to define your own existence, to rise above the human rivers in the street or be drowned under them. Here you can simply be. He also reflects on his two lost compatriots and wishes that they could have the same sort of peace and serenity he's experiencing on the ice caps. He additionally reflects on the party in front of him and the difference of the will of the obsidians and their morals what do you make of the obsidian's victory and liberation so the the way this is described and the way ephraim feels in here makes me really like really realize why the obsidian why the obsidian wanted separation from the republic because this is completely different like this is a different sense of freedom it's beyond freedom from the society it it is freedom from the constraints of the business of cities and of people expectations laws like specifically laws that aren't built for them It, it is true freedom 
And based on what we know about Ephraim and some of his earlier quotes, specifically regarding dogs and collars and like, what well, what was that quote? Um, same dog, different collar, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, or leash. It, it makes one or, one or the other. Or leash, whatever it is. Same, yeah. same, same concept. Of course this appeals to him. Like, this is separate. This is removing that leash, removing that collar. This is this is true freedom in that sense, and um, it, it's really cool to see Ephraim see that and dive in, and and like really really care about them. You know, the yeah. I love the sort of hustle and bustle mindset too when he's comparing the two different you know groups and, and mindsets because there there's something to be said. I mean this this to me feels like a and again this is all extrapolation of course, but. You know, like living in a big city versus like living somewhere else where where it's quiet and kind of going between the two. You start to notice those differences. You notice how quiet it is when you're out, you know, out somewhere else where there isn't all of the sort of abject noise that you've grown used to. It's yeah. um, I don't know. It's it's good. I think that this is a, a very wholesome moment that makes me really appreciate F as a character and the way that he's changed. Mm-hmm. I think this even goes farther than like big city versus small town. I think this is like New York City versus Alaskan frontier. Yeah, I just couldn't say that, PJ, because I lived in New York for a year. It's not fair well, if I yeah. make the analogy. No, that's true. <laughs> so no, you, I think it, you I think it's it. more valid if you make the yeah, analogy. Fair, fair point. It it totally is though. It reminds me. It does remind me of that. You know, one of the one of the funny things that I've had a couple of friends visit from New York, and one of the things that they say it's it's so interesting how quiet it is where you live, and I'm like. Yeah, and this is just like this is a small town, right? Like you said, the Alaskan frontier would be a completely different beast. Like that is two polar extremes. Excuse the mm-hmm. pun. <laughs> no, exactly. And I'm sure we could make even better puns comparisons. <laughs> we could I mean, we can't make yeah. better puns, Crossland. No, uh, every pun that we make gets worse and worse. You know this. Like we I don't think all puns are created puns. equally. But some delivery is better than others. Yeah, and we're not good at delivery. <laughs> That's a fair <laughs> point. <laughs> no, but you, you raise a good point. There are a lot of great and very apt comparisons that happen here. I just it's it's rare that we get a moment with Ephraim where he can be so honest. And I think some of that is also his removal from Zolodone, which you made mention of earlier, and his sort of ability to actually be himself again in a way. You know, he he didn't. Mm-hmm. I don't think there was a moment this week where he reached for Zolodown or thought about it. Um, I feel like we. I feel like he mentioned it. Did he? I feel like he did, but uh, God, I can't remember. All right, if you guys can find a mention of Zolodown in this week's reading, get in the comments. Let us know because <laughs> we're bad at memory stuff. Yeah, sometimes. So <laughs> the chapter ends. With Ephraim dressing down Valdir while he's taking a shit and making sure <laughs> to remind Valdir about his place under Sefi. This this is just such a funny scene, right? Because Ephraim's just like going off peeing and whatnot. And then, <laughs> and then Valdir just like comes open and unzips his pants. And they, they have this like whole conversation. And, and yeah. It's so, mm-hmm. so funny. The conversation, though, that they have, of course, after the penis stuff is odd, but fair. You know, I think that Ephraim dressing him down and being very kind of honest with him about 
Valdir and Freyhild's relationship is is really important because he's not condemning Valdir, which I think is is really important to show off his character. He's not saying, "I think you're making the wrong decision." He's like, "Just know who you're fucking with. Like, just understand what you're doing." Yeah, yeah. It was basically a warning. It was basically Ephraim's attempt at making sure there wasn't a public riot among the leadership of the Obsidian. Sure. More of a keep yourself in check or everyone's going to have a really, really bad time kind of deal. <laughs> like, um, Fair. yeah, really just really just letting him know that he's not being as discreet as he thinks he is and the implications that that brings. Yeah, I, I really think that, again, this shows a little bit of Ephraim's character. A morally good, upstanding character would say, how dare you, like, cheat on the queen? And said, this is more of, like, a just know know what you're getting yourself into, dude. Don't fuck around. Like, realize that everybody knows. <laughs> Everyone can concerned. literally see you making eyes at her right now. Mm. You and your snake between your thighs. I can see it in your shit. Yes. <laughs> can see it in your shit. <laughs> Chapter 45. <laughs> Ephraim... <laughs> night gaze that took a long time (laughs) holy shit all right um so chapter 45 ephraim night gaze i really enjoy the conversation between ephraim and freyhild here sharing advice on love and what she should do about valdir and sefi and the sort of honesty that approaching a culture like this kind of demands you know because of their sort of emotional intelligence you know it's obviously been something that's kind of been stripped out of their culture without belittling them it kind of reminds me of like giving advice to a high schooler about a relationship you know yeah i hadn't put it into those words but that makes total sense that that jives with feeling with them i think that comes from the fact that like this is kind of new territory for them this is them having interacted with the rest of the the world the worlds i guess the rest of the solar system and they're kind of seeing how relationships work outside of their own traditions and understanding the positives and negatives that come with all of it and for better or worse this is kind of a new this is kind of new territory for all of them as far as relationships and interconnected person like personal uh personal connections go relationship or not so it's kind of cool to see them struggle with it and kind of fumble around with with all of these new new ways of interacting and yes it's breaking tradition but so is everybody else in every other aspect of their lives so why not is kind of the read i get on it yeah it's it is so interesting of course like you said i think that that's a great read to like talk about the sort of shift in culture that they're seeing now that they're being submerged in the rest of you know the post the fall of society seeing the republic and what it is and kind of having a better understanding of what reality is and can be so Mm -hmm. yeah there are going to be growing pains there are going to be changes there are going to be you know fights between culture you know it's it's just going to be kind of a thing that naturally emerges and also with that understanding like even these great warriors are, you know, in their own way. We've even made this comment, I think, previously about Volga, but she almost feels simple, even though she's very complex. It's just with th- certain things, you know, like when you're raised and removed from parts of society, you you feel like someone's dumb if they don't understand, you know, how to use a automatic paper towel dispenser. 
But I'll be straight up with you. I absolutely thought she was a fucking idiot for a long time. Volga or Freyhild? Yeah, Volga. <laughs> <laughs> like, I thought she was just an idiot <laughs> for the longest I time. I know. <laughs> we, we, we had some conversations about it. You're like, I don't know. I think she's just really dumb. And I was like, uh. <laughs> I don't know how to fight that opinion right now. <laughs> you couldn't. You couldn't fight that opinion without giving shit away. So right. I got to I got to play like mean boy towards Volga for an entire fucking book. Mean and, boy. Uh, you couldn't say anything about it. Not a single word. Um. <laughs> so I really think that this is going to be. Uh, this this little bit right here that we have to talk about next is kind of a i don't know a, a large expansive topic and there are a lot of different ways to go uh, through this but i really enjoy osgard and ephraim's discussion around the gifted obsidians and we can obviously extrapolate this and talk about gifted people in general the more blessed the creature the less they question life it kind of posits a decent philosophical question what about those who are able to blindly follow something without contemplating like a 360 degree 360 degree angle on every single subject matter able to take statement for fact and the sort of ease with which some people who are gifted can kind of just glide through life you know using their strengths to their advantage and never mm-hmm. never worrying about anything else because their strengths are able to get them through yeah um that is a completely different take on on like my initial read on this sure and and the initial like thought that i had on this specifically i had always considered those who are gifted to be the most capable of sort of challenging life and sort of life structures and everything within it kind of taking the ignorance is bliss idea if you the, those who don't know to question things won't mm-hmm. uh this conversation was more about not needing to struggle to get through life um and relying on inherent talents to pull you through it to your point though think about lyria she's not really particularly skilled at anything uh, but she grew up in a way that really kind of made her scrappy and gave her some unique perspectives her hardships are really what allow her to question the world and and go through it in that sense with that with that perspective so th- this your question changed my view of of this sort of topic and this conversation within or between Osgard and Ephraim i i think it's really tough to to like really kind of I I even have a hard time here, like putting my flag in the ground and saying, this is what this means, because I think that kind of like you even said that there are multiple takes. And I think that it is kind of based on your perspective, right? Like if you if you only have to worry about getting food and that's the only thing and you're really good at getting food, then you don't really have to question life until, you know, higher. I think to your point of, you know, thinking about the way that the, the gifted challenge life and the structures within it. I think that that also comes along with saying you're not only a blessed creature, but you are an intelligent creature Okay, and an intelligent yeah. creature. Like in, in addition, like if you're breast and if you're breast, if you're blessed <laughs> in the brain, <laughs> you'll, you know, do you see where I'm going with that? Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's kind of a delineation there a little bit, but I do I definitely agree with you on Lyria and thinking about, you know, those who aren't blessed and who have to either fight to survive or figure something out tend to be more successful in well, tend to eventually be, you know, more successful which is also counter to osgard's point which is why i'm like i don't think that there's a good way to stake a flag in the ground flag what the fuck did i all right moving on um (laughs) i just made up a new word uh so like i said it like bag but flag (laughs) welcome to minnesota (laughs) it's really bad uh but (laughs) we have a, a very neutral accent um nobody Except can even like tell where we're from <laughs> i generally don't though that's why you're like this is it was strange that it like flag no one says flag flag flag, flag. flag. it's flag <laughs> it's motherfucking flag. flag randall fucking flag raise the flag uh, flag flag all right anyway Put the flag I, on the roof jesus make sure the flag doesn't touch the ground but uh, it's it's so hard to like take a stance on this because and that I, I don't necessarily fully agree with Osgard and kind of their their discussion on the whole because I think that he's being a, a little bit reductive. But he's also just talking about gifted people. He's not talking about the less gifted. So that actually does align with the Osgard sentiment. See what I mean? They're like, this is actually a, a great conversation starter, I think, in a large way. Yeah. Because there are so many different directions to take this on. Yeah, for sure. To wrap up, just a small point that I was saying about Lyria with people who tend to be more challenged with their situations tend to do better of course this that's a large assumption and you know it's not indicative of everyone or everything so Mm -hmm. but there are a number of excellent examples of course of individuals of whom have risen out of hard times to be the best at whatever they do you know writers they're prolific examples octavia butler frederick douglas uh even you know that that guy from maine say his name Grossland. <laughs> the guy that writes the spooky books from maine mm-hmm. so say his name, uh, say his name, say his name. stephen gang fuck you <laughs> <laughs> oh man so <laughs> osgard story about <laughs> I really like <laughs> I'm so excited to actually read anything from Stephen King that's not a <laughs> shitty short story that says nothing. Um well, it just says don't take I'm, your dog near the alligators. It doesn't. It it says less than that, Crossland. It says even less than that. It's a good one. It's nice. It's hard it's work. It's not. It's not. It's good. It's a practice in writing a character and that's it. <laughs> um Anyway, I am excited to read something from Stephen King so I can stop shitting on him because I think it's funny. Uh, because I, have, I I don't know any better. <laughs> <laughs> Fair point. <clears throat> so, Osgood's story about his like path to becoming a shaman is a fantastic one that swings completely out of left field. I love his discussion about religion being a lever which he, a low man, could initiate change with. What do you make of his like proclaimed lifting of his own mask and admittance that he's a liar and all of the sort of context that we get behind this man? So I, I think we can kind of apply this to the previous question and my thoughts on Lyria 
hardships have basically forced him to find new interesting ways to approach the world and really carve out a space for himself. I I think he did it really deftly. I'd agree. It's, you know, he, he obviously is able to leverage his, his situation very well from, you know, the initial moment when he was forced out onto the ice uh, to when he, you know, meets up with the other man and is taught that religion is a lever and that faith can be a lever and gradually works his way around, you know, the different cultures and joins up and, you know, continues to level up in terms of regard and everything like that. I, I do agree with you that it is all born out of hardship, of course, because of his deformation on his hand. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I, I just I, I really I really enjoy his story. I guess there's still the question of is he, you know, trustworthy or not, which we'll definitely get to later. Osgard moves on from that and spits just a ton of different prophecies here as well. Serpent strangling wolf, lion battling lion, sister murder brother, son murder father, father murder daughter. What in the hell do you make of all of those prophecies? Is he telling the truth? Is he once again per his, you know, admittance just a short while ago, a liar again? So I I don't think he's necessarily a liar in that he's strictly making things up here. My read on it was that him being a liar is more of him, his rationalization for why he's able to, to see things like this. But in general, I feel like he actually has a, a great read on people and a great read on the world in general. These these sort of uh, machine gun style prophecies, not prophecies, but um, uh, what what would you call them if not prophecies? Mm, visions, I guess. We'll go with that. Visions. Almost all of them, I feel like, apply to to Mustang and her her family, both by blood and by marriage. At least in my initial read on them. Sure. You know? So we've got serp- Serpent Strangling Wolf. Who who would be the serpent in the previous books in that sense? I guess, I guess you could talk about Atalantia. Okay. With with her snake. But is there a, a house that is a serpent? Specifically? I... Uh, don't believe so okay so i would go with atalantia strangling darrow we've got lion lion battling lion which would be mustang and her family sister murdering brother does mustang end up killing uh the jackal yeah twists his feet yep 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 so son murder murder father that's the jackal killing nero father murder daughter that one do we have a an example of that right now nope not yet um so we've got that coming for us but all the other ones could pertain to direct connections to mustang yeah, that's interesting that you'd point out Mustang is like the source of a lot of those, which, you know, ultimately makes sense. She is kind of the, the circle with which most of our characters are around, actually, you know, more so, mm-hmm. almost more so than Darrow at this point. Absolutely um, more so than Darrow. Yeah. 
unfortunately she's just a cold corpse so that's potentially you know allegedly a cold corpse allegedly <laughs> allegedly a corpse <laughs> um but i i think that you know the one thing that i would bring up just to mention a little bit here is that because it's a prophecy it would be weird for this to be looking backwards especially considering we know that this happened in post of the the uprising as it stands so you, yeah. you know what i mean like it, so yeah yes but what else are we gonna look for like there are some some of those seem really obviously pointing towards things that have happened before okay and it seems like a way of establishing truth for a while and then positing things mm. farther on. Like Interesting. For, for the reader. For the reader to say, oh, that came true, that came true, that came true retroactively. What he's saying here, that's direct, like explicit foreshadowing. Sure. Potentially. Yeah. So yeah. So by building by building up and saying that he knows about these things or he knows these things, we can infer because we know that everything that he said, you know, almost everything that he said to begin with is true. That potentially these prophecies have a path to pay out. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, yeah. Sure, I can read it that way. I can understand it that way. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's cool. where where the intention lies, but that's how I read it. I would argue that no one will know until the series is over whether or not he was probably telling the truth or not, because you can always answer and change prophecies to adjust at any point inside of a story. So, like, regardless of how it plays out, even in the rest of this book, you know, like, prophecies are an ongoing and prophecies commitment to the can reader. just be wrong. Yeah, like the Azora High. <laughs> not mattering at all. Anyway. <laughs> D D, what were you doing? So <laughs> Ephraim and Osgard, I think, share a fantastic moment next to the night gaze, the, these brilliant, brilliant pooled silver flowers, uh, until they discover that something is very, very wrong. They run back to the ship and find Freyhild dangling on the end of a massive meat hook hanging out of her teeth. And we meet a monster. Fa. Volsung Fa. And boy, oh boy, he fucking tore out Freyhild's heart and put it in Ephraim's hands. He later squeezed out Osgard's eye and said he'll willingly take the other later, that Osgard will willingly take it himself. Man, what the fuck are you thinking about this monster right now? Like, where's uh, your brain? All right, so, where are my brains at in this moment? Holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. Fuck, oh god, what the fuck? This is so fucking brutal. Uh, in the moment, I'm really filled with basically just awe and terror simultaneously. I thought Ephraim was going to be taken, but equally, it makes sense that he was given a message. I didn't think he was in trouble. I don't. I I didn't think that he was going to be um, killed or maimed or um kidnapped i guess i i don't know why i just didn't feel like that was going to be an issue i didn't i didn't think he'd be attacked um but 
Regardless, in the moment, holy shit, what the fuck, oh my god, were basically all that was going through my mind. Yeah. The introduction of Fa, both here and later, to two of our different character groups is gnarly. Like, the dude is an absolute monster composed of metal, his throat, you know, having metal laced up it, ribbed, like, it just pieces of uh instead of skin there's metal covering bone like covering over bone and muscle he's just an absolute nightmare oh mm-hmm. yeah i i can i can definitely understand not being worried for Ephraim because he'd felt very much like leave one alive to go back and send the message yeah kind of a thing so i definitely get that um and also what's the motivation for killing a gray like it, that didn't seem to make a whole ton of sense. Um, at the same time, there this this calls back to Ephraim's conversation about the new snowball mm-hmm. and how he talks about being able to get from here to Mars in two weeks flat. Well, maybe not that long. Oh, here it is. So it's on page 368. Could probably run from Mars to the sun in two weeks flat. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, maybe not that fast, but so my thought is that is that line has a lot more importance than just kind of a throwaway thought in Ephraim's head. Later on, the when we see the Askamani later, we see Fa later on as Mm -hmm. well. Is that on the same planet now? Yeah. So the Pandora is circling, circling Mars. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking that this this line was playing into that. Never. Oh mind. no. Okay. No. But I I do I do think there's something just to not let you completely abandon that train of thought. I do think that there is something there because I mean even Pax points out that traveling from the ink where they are the distant ink of the Coupier to uh, Mars would take about a year. Yeah. With yeah. what with the technology that they in theory have. Exactly. So, and and just the here to the sun in two weeks. Mm-hmm. Like that's not a throwaway line. Like that, there's no reason for that to be just kind of a a meaningless line. Like there, something's going to come up where I don't know. Someone's going to show up faster than they should, and I think this ties into that i don't i don't remember where i'm going with like with this train of thought uh what was the question (laughs) (laughs) well i mean it was really just you know what are what are you kind of thinking about the whole situation so we were we were you were saying that you know obviously the timing is important or could potentially be important and so i was just bringing up that way um any other thoughts you know early about the situation with fa from mostly from Ephraim's perspective right now, but any other thoughts? Um, God, he's, I would assume much bigger than Ragnar, right? Much. Yes. I'm curious to see how he like directly compares to a normal person and, and to Ragnar. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's terrifying to me. Yep. 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 (laughs) <laughs> full song the taker man he who walks the void oh boy 
All right, with that, chapter 46, Ephraim Whirlpool. I believe this is our last Ephraim chapter. Woo! Um, not not like woohoo in that way, but like, <laughs> we're halfway there. Whoa! Ephraim chapter. Um, cool. Why did I do that? So, um, the emotional <laughs> resonance around the death of Freehild is absolutely massive its impact on the skuggy of course is huge ephraim valdir and in turn sefi are enormous and the looming shadow of the Ascomani over the volkland is now a new threat to the safety we've perceived for them that even we've talked about in these previous couple chapters here ephraim recounts two different somber thoughts in the wake of freehold's death death in all things but not dying it seems some deaths make all feel terribly mortal how do you think her death will impact things and what do you what do you think about the quotes um well there will obviously be sort of an initial and immediately like important interpersonal connection like problems and just (laughs) turbulence between sefi and valdir and there's the question of trusting the claim that the askamani are responsible Mm -hmm. that um was it Ephraim and Osgard or Ephraim and um Osgard were the ones out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there there's that sort of issue. But once everything settles down, I kind of strangely think that um there's gonna be some growth that sparks from this. There's gonna be some more caution. But there, there, there will be more interconnectedness within the tribe, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how that develops, if that develops at all. The fact that there is a common threat that they have all heard of, and they have all mm-hmm. been told ghost stories about, is going to drive them together. Yeah, it's looking. It's definitely looking like it's going to be a whole time for the folks the obsidians that we you know have come to love and appreciate there's definitely it's not going to be smooth water smooth sailing right yeah i'm in pain for them you know yeah (laughs) there's a comment here of course that valdir leaves the room after you know in a couple of different speeches and talking happens having drank a lot of wine being very drunk at this sort of celebration that was happening you know of of her life um, among kind of the other the sun death and everything like that that was going on but Valdir leaves the room taking the side of Xenophon against that of Osgard and Ephraim's hearsay retelling of the events that have unfolded regarding the Ascomani like you'd kind of just mentioned what do you make of his outburst and Sefi's dismissal, dismissal of him I think I think he's one of potentially two Ascomani moles I think he's he's feeding the Askamani information, if not directly like working with them. I don't know. I, I think there's two. I think it's him and Xenophon. Okay. And they are working together and coordinating with each other and influencing Sefi as much as they can to like follow the path that would make more like that would make everything as easy as possible for the Askamani. Read on and find out. Conspiracy theorist enough for you? 
yeah, no, I, I definitely understand that, you know, your your thought around them being there being two moles. You said Valdir and I think Xenophon. Xenophon? Okay. Um, uh, do I think Xenophon or do I I think Xenophon. I, I do think Xenophon. Um because of a connection that happens later on, but because I think Xenophon is also a figment. And we'll get into that later. The group of them confers with Xenophon in attendance to transcribe what Pax has said. You know, Pax, of course, is in the scene and kind of breaking down some of the the problems that we had mentioned with the way that, you know, could the Ascomani be here? How could they have gotten here? Something had to have changed for them to have known. You know, their timing is very strange. So they, they bring this up and they confer. And Xenophon is intended to subscribe or to transcribe what Pax has to say about the Ascomani. And Electra's reading of the situation, though, I think is maybe the most heartbreaking to me because, you know, she sees the way out of this situation, the way to earn defense for the new all tribe as you know trading away one of the hostages and that ultimately she would request electra with the intent of getting packs because mm-hmm. of uh mustang's death and you know kind of the the guilt that she would feel towards towards darrow and feels confident in like leaving her kid because of the value of packs versus the value of electra and that to me is heartbreaking um it's heartbreaking, sure, but I think she's wrong. You think and she's wrong? I think she's wrong specifically because she doesn't know that Victra and and her fleet uh, and the the Julii fleet and uh, all of their people separated from and and went against the orders of the rest of the Republic and Mustang in general. She doesn't realize that Victra is like out for blood and and will not stop at or will will stop at nothing to uh, try to find them and collect them. I think Electra is right, except for the fact that everything changed once she was taken. Mm. You know, like yeah. yes, it's heartbreaking, and yes, it, it though all of those points still stand, but she's wrong. In my opinion. Now. I think she would have been right if she was assessing this from the outside before she had been kidnapped. But after the kidnapping, Victra went off in a completely different direction than Mustang did and kind of proved that she was not just a lapdog for the for the for the cause, I guess. Yeah, definitely. By the way, I just I, this just popped into my head. We talked about the flesh chain, the like chain of skulls that fucking dude carries think, around. Fog I don't carries think we've around. talked about it. No, I don't, I don't think we did. That is horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're just talking about this heartbreaking <laughs> moment with a 10 year old, but uh, <laughs> my, my brain jumped back to the chain of skulls tied together. How do you think they're tied together? Like at, at what? point in the skull are they tied together is it like through the temple i kind of think about it as like through the top of the head and i think about it like if you had a razor that was segmented you know i don't know you could probably maximize the number of skulls that would fit on a chain if you went like through one eyeball or like eye socket out the other eye socket and then flipped it 
So you were like, mm. mat, like you were pushing together as close as possible, like nose bridges. Yeah, I can I can see how you could Tetris some skulls together. Yeah, yeah, I think that would be yeah. probably the most efficient way of fitting skulls into a chain. Several Valkyrie are lying dead on the floor in the scene right after this. The Griffins have flown the coop, and God Eater is screaming and clawing at the wall. Steffi puts down God Eater with a stab through the heart and turns to address a grieving Valdir full of rage in front of pools of blood. And Ephraim discovers as he's hauled away that his Azag has been tempered with his, his wine, the purple drink that was staining his teeth. Almost as interesting, perhaps, even, is that Sethi actually is interested in Volga becoming queen. Both of these are are intense kind of moments and reveals. Yeah. So, first of all, God, uh, first of all, Sethi kills God Eater with a razor, which I think mm-hmm. is an interesting thing to make note of. But beyond that, the reveal of Volga to me when I was first reading this was so fucking like intense and just mind boggling. The fact that one of Ragnar's children survived. And I mean, obviously he didn't necessarily know about them. I'm curious about that. If he was aware of what they were doing with his, his seed, so to speak, but definitely a fun twist. And it also brings up sort of the question of, if Volga survived, who else might have? But I don't know. We'll we'll get into that later on, I'm sure, because they knew about Volga. They knew about her in general, and I feel like they would have mentioned other names if anybody else survived as well. But at the yeah. same time, leaving that open is a good potential future like conflict. There this also brings up sort of a thought on Ragnar and we we know he's huge and just capable and crazy and was the the prized possession of the Ash Lord mm-hmm. but everything that had been described about him had kind of called him as as the Ash Lord's dog or pet or just kind of plaything as far as throwing him into a fighting ring and like watching him brutally kill somebody it doesn't ever like none of those conversations ever mention how important he was to the society and and how he was such a genetically superior just absolute beast that um that he got this sort of special treatment not necessarily positive treatment, but he he was treated differently than other obsidian, other stained, and that's never really mentioned. So that was kind of interesting to see. Yeah, I think that some of the the sort of treatment in the language, like we're we're kind of you know positing around him, really comes from um, obviously like part of the reason he was respected is because of what he was doing in the arenas at the time and sort of his you know monikers that he had earned there mm-hmm. you know like earned him a place because it earned him a name earned him a stature of fear i don't think that it's saying that he was so important so mind-blowing but he became really important obviously when he was like very very like beyond just sort of the fear the name of fear in the background he became real when 
he became, you know, Darrow's obsidian, you know, Darrow's obsidian leader commander. Um, that's really when, you know, I think the legend of Ragnar really takes off in a different that's, direction. I mean, that's when the legend happens, but he was clearly important to the society beforehand because after he was teamed up with Darrow, I don't necessarily think taken is the right term, but after he and Darrow are aligned and uh, are working together, they would, the society wouldn't have had a chance to do those, those experiments and those uh, taking, taking his seed, so to speak. Well, yeah. Okay. So, like, so he, he was clearly a standout and clearly important and, and an outlier before that is more what I'm saying. Sure. Sure. The grimaces were the ones who did that though, not the society. So I guess that's a little bit of a difference, but yeah. I yeah. So. so I, I guess I was, I thought you were saying that he was like bigger in the universal context. And I'm like, I don't think he was known that widely, but I think that he was really made a big deal of course, by the grimaces, which is why, you know, like, like they said, there were probably 200 something kids out there or something like that. Right. I think and they, they, they assumed everybody died in the bombings, but obviously Volga survived. My thought, my initial thought was if Volga survived, who else did? But then again, we hear about them talking about Volga. We don't hear them talking about anybody else. Yeah, right. So if anybody else survived, that is also unknown to the Obsidian. Right, right. No one else has any concept about them. Totally. But yeah, Volga's Volga being the daughter of Ragnar, huh? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, certainly something else. Certainly something else. It's going to be going to be interesting. Makes makes this next chapter kind of like a whole lot more stressful with her kind of survival on the line and these these different kind of moments now because she suddenly has more yeah. weight as a character. Yep. Yeah. But she doesn't know it. No, she's no clue. As far as which also is endearing. But she she does know that she was uh, experimented on as a child. Yes. She doesn't mention at all being Ragnar's daughter, but she doesn't say that she doesn't know who her parents are, does she? Uh, I think that that's a good question. I can double check the letter in a second here. I don't think she does. My my understanding is that she doesn't know who her who her father is and that could be wrong seem that way chapter 47 lyria they are sleeping i really enjoy kind of the back and forth of the letters here between lyria and volga and how she obviously we predominantly are reading the letter from volga um and that's that's what we're spending the most time with we get a little bit of one read from figment later but we we get a real sense that there's been a strange kinship that's grown between these two women, between the, the vents, as they've both torn apart their outfits to write each other in blood stories to keep each other entertained while they're floating between a shitting in a tube and eating paste out of, you know, windows. I don't know. It's uh, it's interesting. And obviously, Volga describing your stories of life growing up in the Grimace Stambles is, you know, it it's all it all makes a lot of sense. It's good. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of like interesting information revealed from all of this. I really kind of wish though, it, it showed what Lyria actually understood. She says she mm. only gets about 20% of, of some of the letters. 
So I, I wish I knew what she actually understood and responded to. We do, through that, get a little bit of a flashback of her time with Cavax, how he helped her learn to read, and that was pretty touching. Yeah, you you raise a fair point. I think it'd be interesting, you know, you wouldn't necessarily want it to be like, if you're thinking about how you could write something like that and put it onto the page, right? Like, you could make the document look redacted, you could like scramble the letters, but all of that would kind of feel like cheating because you almost couldn't like we couldn't work it out. Like it'd be so it, it's it would be a difficult thing to pull off. But I do see what you're saying. Like, so it'd be I, nice I, to know what she didn't understand. I think you'd have to do not a redacted thing, but if you were to do something like uh, playing with the italicized or playing with bolding or highlighting or something like that. And then showing her response as well. Yeah, I, I guess that would be that was the first thing that I thought is you could totally do something like uh, a moment in which she, you know, you disconnect from the letter and she shakes her head because she doesn't understand. You know, she like reads something, then she rereads the line and still doesn't get it. You know, like you can you can kind of narrate your way through a lack of understanding like that. So I, I just I felt like there was a little bit more that could have been done to uh to highlight what Lyria actually understood as opposed to what she was given it, sure. it felt like one of the few moments in this entire series where we get a lot more information than the uh the main character of the section does good point yeah that that definitely is a unique situation um there have been a couple of times of course where we've had exposure to dramatic irony and things like that but this is you know, like the fact that we know right now that <laughs> she's the daughter of uh, of Ragnar. You know, we've got that yeah. perspective. So. But that's that's not the same thing. Though. Like that was that was information that we learned outside of. It's not the same thing because that was a different perspective. We learned that through this perspective of a different main character. And yes, there's some dramatic irony that follows through because of that. But this is. We are we are seeing this world through the lens of Lyria, and we are getting more information than she is while being presented the same thing. Like it, it's a very unique sort of issue, I guess. I don't I don't know the right way to describe it because I don't think it's necessarily dramatic irony. It's something a little bit more specific than that. So so this is actually still dramatic irony by definition. In which the audience understands something that the character does not, right? Okay, that's, I guess it's not that's the dramatic same irony. Sense of, it's not the same sense of dra dramatic irony as like us knowing about Volga's lineage. Yes, we learn yeah, that totally agree through, with you there. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's that's still dramatic irony through a different point of view. This is just dramatic irony because she doesn't understand the language, and it, it feels or different. how to read. It it feels yes. completely different than. Um, some of the other information gathering that we've learned that we've uh, experienced throughout the entire series. It, it, it took me out of the immersion a little bit, knowing that she mm. only understood 20% of this. Was it that she only understood 20% or was it that she was missing 20%? No, she, she only got about 20% of that. So like, it, it is a ton of information that we gain here that Lyria doesn't. Smiling and finding myself unable to decipher only about 20% of the words. So unable to decipher only 20%. So she's she's got 80%. Okay, I, I completely misunderstood that then. 
because that's of the wording. That, that is that yeah. is a bad wording of that. I would I would agree. This is how some of my questions are phrased inside of this very document. What page is that on? Four oh three. Smiling and finding myself unable to decipher only about twenty percent of the words, I flip over the strip of cloth. I flip the strip of cloth over. Excuse me. That which is funny because we actually that, that is about. such a weird way to describe that. That that's a weird wording, and the way that's worded would make me assume it was intended to say only able to decipher about twenty percent. That double like said, negative almost really feels like doesn't a double negative. It, it is a double right. negative. It's not explicitly, but it effectively is a double negative. As we're commenting on Lyria's intelligence from Lyria's point of view, it's worth noting that she probably doesn't know what a double negative is anyway. That's a good point. I, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I do understand. Like I said, I, I think that there's, you know, like there's got to be a way that we can that you could work through something like that. I don't know. Depends. It's fine. But I think that the the content that's delivered is obviously delightful. There are clearly reasons why all this information's there. Like we, we mm-hmm. use that information later. It, 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 it was just a different feeling. It felt weird compared to every other instance of perspective and information gathering that we have. But it makes it a little bit better knowing that I misread it and assumed she only got 20% as opposed to only missed 20%. Yeah. I, I mean, I, again, it's good stuff. I mean, there's a ton of content that's dropped in here to kind of describe her upbringing and everything else. So it's, uh, it's just good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then we're finally introduced to fig, the figment that was spoken about all the way back in iron gold with Ephraim, the abductor of Lyria at the end of iron gold as well. And, it is she's she's certainly an interesting character. There doesn't seem to be like a direct analog that I can think of as I've reflected on Fig Fig's like voice and Fig's sort of characteristics. You know, one might say that she's got kind of the roguishness in a way of, of Han Solo and the way that she's like always looking for her gun and things like that. And kind of, you know, I, I think roguish is a decent way of, of thinking about it. But mm-hmm. uh, Fig also reveals, of course, that the room that our Lyria and Volga have been trapped in isn't so much reminiscent of the box of the jackal, but is instead a puzzle that should have been solved where she could have been living in a perfectly fine cell if she would have worked it out herself. So early on in Iron Gold, Figment is mentioned as one of the assassins that Ephraim concedes is better than him. We're on the same As good, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we've got that. The brown that's actively dying mentions something about the bone rider, like unfinished business with them. So I, I think it's her that that we were dealing with a little bit early in. I don't think it was this book late in in Iron Gold, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Oh, there are a swirling of plot details here, and I'm not perfectly recollecting them at the moment. So I'm going to be cautious and tread around this one a little bit. The I'm trying not to also imply this is like this isn't like a Raffo. This is like a more like a there are a lot of things that kind of get juggled around inside of the space so there's my thought when remembering this thing that you're talking about was from atalantia's perspective talking about the syndicate and having an assassin working for them which was gorgo cool so after they're released from their cells they're informed they're being traded to Sefi, which as we know is because volga is incredible importance to the future of the volkland as it's future queen 
as well as being the daughter of Ragnar. That's fucking crazy, man. Yeah. Like that entire thing is just absolutely insane. I mean, I'm curious what the, uh, the mother's side of all this was. Like, sure. Who else is she born from? That's something I'm really interested in learning because I'm, I'm assuming it's not incest. So I'm, I'm assuming it's not Sefi, but we don't know that many female obsidian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it could be anyone like we've kind of, you know, said for the most part, but test tube baby. Mm-hmm. We also know that Volga's like internal organs are placed in the wrong spot. Yeah. That's interesting. Right. Mm-hmm. Heart on one side, liver on the other. Yeah, and and she mentions it's not even just mirrored. She mentions that her her heart is on the side, not even close to the center. Which and anatomically, the heart is like basically dead center, even though it's often mm-hmm. like referred to as on the, on the left side. So like, it's not just a mirror; it's something completely different. It, it's something that they were just kind of fucking with the in, internal like spaces of her organs. As far as she understands. So I'm I'm wondering if there's a reason for that also. If they were just experimenting. Could totally be the case. I think that there's a lot to be explored yet with this. And obviously the chapter goes from here and changes very quickly. The, this entire section changes very quickly into action. But speculating about it a little bit. You know, I, I think the mother is obviously important in sort of the experiments that were going on with using Ragnar as the stud, as you said, is is interesting and again would be curious if there are of course any other survivors in the line that might you know come up to challenge this down the road but i think that that's probably you know that's like such a far off removed story at this point but it would be very interesting to know about dear old mom you know yeah especially or compared if it's to Aaliyah. that'd be interesting if she's half gold that would be interesting i doubt it though you know, like just from concept at the time of which she would have been born. Yeah. You know, that's true. But that's a good point. Yeah. Obviously was given attention by the grimaces because she does remember Atalantia, you know, Atalantia. So, yeah. And that snake's hmm. fucking old now. How long do snakes live? Uh, Good question. I mean, we know that regardless of how old the snake is, we know that like Sophocles was cloned. So Hypatia could have been cloned. Nope. Sophocles is the only clone. We know that. Ah, yes. The only clone. <laughs> the singular only clone. We know this. This is true. This is the uh, the way things are. It's uh, just the facts. So after meeting the very unpleasant Paxton and hearing the news of the Sovereign's demise, Lyria begins to take a shower until she hears a high-pitched whistle to be confronted by fleshy bodies laying on the ground after their vessel kind of docks and membranous sort of fluid creates a barrier, a seal. More interesting, though, is what happens to Fig. He starts to get hints. Yeah, we start to get hints here that there might be something else going on with her. What do you think it is, and what do you make of of the entire sort of scene? So, first of all, regarding Paxton, right before she walks into the shower, he winks and smiles at her, saying, like, I hope you enjoy your shower. So... That that in and of itself got me like really trying to figure out what was going to go on. So like I was suspicious here. I'm like, oh, fuck, what's going to go down in the shower? And lo and behold, 
something went down in the shower. Wow. I don't I I don't believe that was the intention from Paxton. Like I I don't think he was in on it or anything like that, but just the way that he smiled and winked at her before saying go enjoy your shower really got me on edge. But as far as understanding that or realizing that there was something up with figment the biggest one for me and i'm assuming this was what you were kind of referring to was uh when lyria called her a brown and she basically just kind of scoffed at and scoffed at that assumption and said i am whatever i need to be in the moment yeah and that is like you said i think that's almost a response that isn't from her but it is from the squid the brain squid the squid the squid it is interesting that one of the first browns that we like really get to meet no (laughs) it's mind controlled (laughs) kind of you know obviously she has a personality and there's that but there's clearly something else going on with the figment of course not a good chef not a good (laughs) and again Going back to your point about Paxton, though, I I think you're right. It's almost like it almost seemed like he knew that something worse might be coming. Not necessarily that the Ascomani thing was going to happen, of course, because I don't he didn't know that he was going to get eaten alive. But he definitely like thought that there was worse coming for them as they like were, you know, going to go to Victra. In retrospect, it almost seems like an intentional red herring. Yeah. Yeah. It almost gives like a. Uh, man it almost gives like a a rapey impression you know like it does it it really was, does that was totally it, where it's my something brain went on really nefarious but not attacking the whole ship nefarious mm-hmm. just nefarious towards lyria yeah which isn't to say that it's better or worse like both are pretty fucking horrifying M- my point more so was that I saw that as a call out of something bad's going to happen during the shower. And I'm curious if, if that was actually the intention as like a foreshadowing for like three sentences or something. Like it, it's really quick. Like it, it's mm-hmm. almost instantly after she sh- starts the shower that this like drilling starts to happen. So I don't know. The the whole winking and smiling thing before saying, go enjoy your shower was really kind of odd to me and seemed to like just bring up more questions of what was actually going on. And I I don't think it was entirely necessary at all. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely. Well, I mean, I appreciate that it was there because it does provide, like you said, red herring, like tension around the scene where we don't expect it to go in the direction that it goes in. But, you know, I I can also imagine this being in a movie, you know, like this, this feels like a very cinematic thing. And then to have something else happen that totally derails and we we have this asshole character set up of whom is then going to immediately be offed, you know, because he's an asshole. Yeah, but but the the incorrect payoff, I guess, is how I would describe it. I don't know if that's the right description, but the the time between him making that comment and them drilling through the the shower wall is so quick that i feel like all it does is so confusion sure like if you're going to use that as a as a red herring i feel like it has to be more removed from the actual payoff okay all right 
I don't know. I mean, it depends on the it depends my, on the speed at which you read, and you know if you read real slow. So I, I do, assume, and it felt too fast. So like, hmm. how did you feel about it? I feel fine about it. I just read it as this dude's a douchebag. Okay, fair enough. You know, like like outside of like metatextual composition things, it it's it's just like douchebags exist inside of this universe, which is also refreshing because generally, generally we get you know like one of the one of the complaints that we've kind of you know not not a huge complaint but like a tiny thing that we've talked about in the original trilogy is that there are you know we mostly spend time with the sort of hoity-toity the peerless scarred the like upper families only in morningstar do we start to really like peel that back and see some of the rest um but even then we still only have one example of a non-peerless scarred gold and similarly i think getting an example of a character who's an asshole is a is a good thing yeah yeah that's true so that's that's it that's all of course uh we've got some monsters to deal with now so chapter 48 (laughs) monsters this chapter is uh, a little bit longer i've only got a couple of things to say though because i think that this chapter is horrific and that it mostly kind of speaks for itself in a large way the the monsters indeed are monstrous we arrive at a scene with more guards the smallest creature getting a hole blasted through it but as you know it stands up it's organs hanging out gravity turns off and we just come to realize what they are these are the oscamani these are the oscamani that have been warped by their time in space and in oscamani berserker the tiny guys scuttle on the floor like a demon crab as described by lyria my god my brain just immediately thinks of horror movies in this moment as these creatures wake up on the floor and start to tear into the 30 guards that are around and of course paxton of whom we just talked about getting eaten alive by the tiny guy yeah this is kind of just straight up the stuff from nightmares like <laughs> yeah. this is fucking terrifying right. at the same time i feel like it suffers from the same thing like same sort of um criticisms that the dragon ma had for me early on Morningstar. okay i get the gist of it and i understand like what's happening but description wise i felt like it was incredibly lacking and it, like even the hole being drilled into the shower like there's this film kind of thing that's like protecting it from the the vacuum of space it, it, all of it felt underdeveloped and underdescribed and i wish there was just more description sure yeah i i think that this is in my recollection of my first read of this book and everything like that i even remembered this scene very differently where i didn't i didn't remember kind of the the flopping dudes on the floor um but i i would agree that i think that this is one of the few few scenes in anything that pierce brown has written that i've read where i've been like i could use a little bit more here like i i generally like he's he you know, it's he's proper at spicing up the scenes in just the right way to make sure that, you know, it's a tasty scene. And mm-hmm. I think that he nails a lot of the action and everything like that. But I think that just a little bit more description here would have gone a long way. That said, this is the first read where it actually clicked for me, where like I got the whole scene setting and I, I understood kind of where and why everything was moving the way that it did. Um, these dudes are terrifying. You know, they're something else for sure. You could say that they are something else. (laughs) 
So obviously there's there's a lot more that happens as we kind of run between hallways and, and different things like that, or they're moving around the room and kind of trying to figure out what's going on. Fig throws a bomb at the fucks, and after they seemingly shout a battle cry for Fa, we get an incredible scene that almost plays out in slow motion as the ship decompresses and Lyria finds herself dying before Volga intervenes and saves her. And my god man like what a scene like the the water freezing on her tongue the blood boiling off the walls the the cold and the bones all of it all of it's so good yeah everything is just yep just so good just so well done J- just so good so with that we get into chapter 49 lyria run and lyria really of course has saved the day here because after the scene kind of cuts off we wake up with Lyria putting an oxygen mask and sharing it between Volga and her and keeping them alive. Oxygen begins to refill the ship very slowly. Volga liberates a gun from one of the dead soul guards hands and kind of that like crunching to me is very brutal. I love the way that she like picks up the rifle from him though too and like gives it a pet. I think it's just perfect. It's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty funny. Um, uh, Where are we at right now? chapter 49 page eight uh so i i think one of the most impressive things about all of this and the fact that she's able to save volga and get out of out of the all of this alive and unscathed is the fact that she doesn't fucking remember it Mm -hmm. her her internal subconscious convictions are very strong is basically what i'm saying yeah to to get her to that point makes sense to me I, I also really like Luria and Volga's kind of roughshod bonding that's happening throughout this section. You know, now that they're really interacting with each other for the first time and not just sort of you know, writing between, you know, the two of them or seeing each other from a distance. They're really bonding over this idea of escape and beginning to kind of have an understanding of each other. It's clear from all of this that she's she is actually somebody very, very gentle. And it's it's sad to see people call her something violent that's pretending to be gentle when in reality as far as i can tell she is somebody gentle that whenever she needs to she pretends to be very violent like yeah completely the opposite and i think that gets back to volga's like even appreciation for like nature and animals you know she again even in the letter she makes comparisons to animals and like thinks about it and talks about some of the unique animals out loud because that's what she's fascinated with and loves and like you said, I think that's a great, great way of putting it is that she's gentle by nature, but she does act violent when necessary, but doesn't that's not her preferred state of being. She'd rather own a zoo, you know, like that's yeah. that's Volga. Jade back gorillas, man. Yeah, the star, right. The exactly. star exhibit. Jade back gorillas. That's what it was. I was trying to remember. The following scene plays out very much like a horror movie right after that. Everyone gathers all 30 of the soul guards near a grav lift while the small berserkers are crawling through the vents, keeping in mind, of course, that they are smaller than Lyria, only up to her clavicles, which puts them, you know, probably around like five, two, I think something like that in height. The grav lift opens and there Fa floats. He immediately offers Volga stains and pops out, pops off a gold's head like needles skewering a strawberry before killing everyone else in the room. It is a truly terrifying visage of violence that this man, this Volsung, dispatches upon everyone else. So there's a couple questions I have here. Hmm. One, the fact that 
he knows to offer stains. Does that mean he was a stained? Um, one would assume. Right. So when was that and why and how? And how does that lead like how does that connect to the lore of the obsidian? And the and the Askamani in general. So that's that's one question. Like the other thing that I thought was really interesting was the fact that he offered his stains before he even like went went forward and proved his strength. By killing fucking everybody. I think that I, I, I think that was probably the best way to go about it. I think uh, that's the most of effective way of proving your strength is just fucking killing everybody. That said, I think you could probably do it in a way that doesn't doesn't kill everybody. I think you can probably like you know, prove your strength another way because all of those people were really important to Sefi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I think I think you bring up a really good point on the the kind of like stained commentary, right? As far as a lot of the description gets with stained, right? The reason that they're called stained is because of the the tattoos and whatnot. But that does bring about like how long have the stained been a part of obsidian culture? Like is it from the beginning? Why would they know this? But we know that the Oscamani were separated during the Dark Revolt. So that's that's interesting. Does he know this for some other reason maybe or is it you know, it, it does raise a number of good questions. So could not can't help but agree with you. Also, he just tears apart everyone in the fucking room like meat popsicles. <laughs> Who wouldn't like though? they turn up the gravity to stop him given given the chance. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> like they, they just that's that's their countermeasure is like just flipping the gravity harder because they deal well in low grav. So it made more sense to make it heavier so that it was a grueling Instead of racing down a hallway, it's more like trying to crawl on two legs. Right. But as they make their way away from Fa, they pass from brutal scene to brutal scene, moments where golds are torn asunder, silver is holding in his intestines, and an Oscamani laugh as they chop into folks' heads. Like, this is brutal and awful and ugh. It's kind of a truly terrifying setup um, in, a, in a lot of ways. But after passing through them, we finally arrive back with Fig, with Volga, Volga, of course, grabbing her by the neck, and she attempts to spit acid at her, and then, like, electrifies her skin to get Volga to let go. Of course, Lyria presses a pistol to her temple and says a truly badass line, one that belongs in a diehard movie for sure. Soft head, hard bullet, bad combination, bitch. Like, Yeah, that's a pretty good line. That's a pretty it, sweet line. <laughs> It's it's a great action hero line. And to come from Lyria, it's like, yes, go, go, girl. Love that. Love that for you. Yes, it does. Uh, what do you think of the, the, the like, uh, the, the, the fig doing weird shit, biochemical shit, apparently? Yeah, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> it's pretty insane. It doesn't seem that practical, though. The the only, like, real, I don't know. I don't know the best way to describe it. It, it. it doesn't seem to be that useful except for in a situation like this where you're trying to subdue a potential host. Mm. <laughs> I like how you went a different route as opposed to subduing someone as opposed to subduing a potential host, which is two different things. Because at this point, Fig is very much content inside of the brown that she's been in, you know, forever or figment, the figment, not even... Yeah. You know, however you want to describe that. Yeah, that's true. Xenophon is a squid. Xenophon no. is... Xenophon, well. <laughs> my, my intention... To get to your point. Yeah. yeah. No. Um, 
Figment, I think, is a hive mind. And I think Xenophon is also a Figment. <laughs> Fair enough. But we'll get into that later. Of course, after being threatened, Fig agrees to help them escape via a way out through the bridge, avoiding as many Oscamani as possible along the way. Fig is obviously looking out for her paycheck, first and foremost. Yeah, I mean, obviously, her paycheck, but also just complete mutual benefit. She doesn't get paid if they don't get out alive. She doesn't survive if they don't bring her out. Win-win. Mm-hmm. I, I guess, uh, I don't know if it's a win for either of them, but win-win in the sense that neither none of them die right there. <laughs> right. Like, I don't know if that's winning, but it is surviving. It is not losing, which is sometimes winning. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's um, it's a whole whole thing for sure. Mm-hmm. So with that, we get into the final chapter of the week, chapter 50, Lyria Parasite. For those listening at home, we are at two hours and 55 minutes since we started recording. This has uh, been a long episode. <laughs> this has been a very long episode. It is We've been out of one of these in a me. while. It is almost one in the morning for me. Yeah. Two nights in a row now. So <laughs> there's a third one tomorrow for you. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> um, <laughs> chapter 50, Lyria Parasite. Making their way to the bridge's escape pod, of course, they find it inhabited by a dozen of these soul guards and the exceedingly pregnant Victra Albarca. <laughs> exceedingly pregnant. Is that different? Exceptionally than pregnant? pregnant. Exceptionally pregnant. I mean, it was said that she was overdue in iron gold, and okay, we're like, I guess, a month I guess out. Then exceedingly pregnant would make sense. Are we like ten years out from iron gold? Not your morning star. We're ten years out from morning star. Not iron gold. Okay. 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 Yep. Morning gold was the last book. Yeah. Or morning gold. Iron gold was morning, the last book. Morning gold. <laughs> morning gold. <laughs> Going to bed now. Goodbye. Shutting down. Well, all right, I I will finish up this episode myself. Um, <laughs> Crossland is a person. Uh, sorry. <laughs> so immediately upon entering the pod, Lyria is punched out before we switch to a scene in which the escape craft is crashing. Victor being sucked out of the front of the ship, but Lyria and Volga landing on the ground, mostly unaffected, thankfully saved by bindings and other uh, protective measures within the escape craft to prevent them from bouncing around. Both of them within centimeters of death, though, multiple times. Yeah. Um, if Victra survives this, I think she'll only find Lyria to be more suspicious, you know? Of what? In what way? Just in, in general. So conveniently, Lyria is safe again after a ship that... Victra is like heavily invested in or owns has been infiltrated, attacked and ultimately destroyed. Like Lyria is the sort of uh, connecting factor of all of this. And we know it's just out of happenstance that she gets kind of caught in the crossfire here, but it's not. (laughs) She is. It'd be easy to make her out to be a guilty party here. I guess what I'm saying. Yeah, that's a fair point. And and that would be something that Lyria might circle around on, you know, being suspicious of. But at the same time, you know, with with so many of her other guards and everything else dead, I don't think that this is obviously, you know, like Lyria is a naturally suspicious character of people's intents now. 
ever since Ephraim fucked her over for sure. Yeah, that's true. So I think I think she'll definitely hold on to that in the way that you're suggesting. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, of course, Victra is going to blame Lyria like in, in the same way that you're recommending. Like Victra is going to be like, wherever you go, things get fucked. <laughs> yep. This is your fault. Exactly. Lyria, damn it. When in reality, the whole thing's been a little messy between Volga and Lyria. Searching through the wreckage, Lyria reflects on the clumsy hand of war and the damage that it wrecked over the landscape after almost all of the other pods are found with the dead folks in them. I think it's actually a really great moment where she gets to reflect and think about her brothers, not as abandoning her, but instead choosing something else to fight for. It's... I, I think it's a great moment, and we've talked about kind of the myth of war from a num- number of characters' perspectives throughout this novel, right? Like, Ephraim, it's never been a myth. Ephraim has been submerged in war and has been drowning it out with Zolodon and other things like that. Darrow, of course, is almost the embodiment of war at this point, and it understands the weight very directly. Um, Lyria was probably the most removed from war and is now having an understanding of it. And Lysander was also fairly removed from war and had ideas given his time as a scholar, you know, spent reading, but now has been very much submerged in war, you know, in a similar way. So thematically, right. these characters are all connected by this this sort of sense of violence. But I think that at the very least, Lyria's perspective serves as a sort of opening up here. Right. It's a widening of the lens. Yeah. I have more. I have more to say about that. Yeah, I kind of flung that one at you because I didn't actually put it together until right now. <laughs> I didn't think about it. I was waiting for this theme to collide because I knew that it was going to happen eventually, but I didn't think about I forgot that this was the week, you know, like my no, brain didn't put it together until I started saying it. I just, whoop. I know I have more to say, but I can't think of it right now. I really can't. I don't know. So <laughs> <laughs> then our final little point here, final little thing to talk about for the week the squid thing that is connected with the figment that is the figment who, who the fuck the knows figment. no one really knows clearly is the figment yeah i mean it is it is definitely the figment um in a way but i you know like uh, there there's so many questions so many questions to be answered so the squid thing crawls out of the brown's nose that we've known as fig which i cannot help but imagine the squid thing as it's described as looking like the naval squid from the matrix that crawls into neo like exactly the same image in my head cannot get it out um crawls from figment and into lyria up through her fucking nose before fig dies her body shouts a poem by sappho the ancient greek feminist a a lesbian poet um which was actually very important but I, i i think this entire scene is like leaves this chapter in this week with this sort of world left of possibilities. What the fuck had happened to Lyria? You know? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, clearly as far as I can tell, clearly that figment is, or that, that squid is figment. Sure. Um, and I, I think it can just kind of use whatever host it can at the time. It, it, calls for the crow it doesn't want lyria because lyria isn't skilled really in anything it it wants her to bring volga over so it can infect volga but it's forced essentially to infect lyria if 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 that squid isn't 
the figment itself, it's at least some sort of controller, like some sort of remote control, so to speak. My my thought, and I think I mentioned, I touched on this earlier, is that mm-hmm. this is some sort of loose hive mind, and each uh, each tendril of that hive mind is a quote-unquote figment of the hive mind. Sure. And allows them to kind of communicate within nodes, which for that reason, I think Xenophon is also a figment because she like kind of goes off in distant and stares off into space, comes back, draws back in and mentions Xenophon's name and moves on forward from there. I think uh, there are comments from this brown lady about the figment and Lyria sees it as comments in the third person, but clearly it's like a completely separate entity. So mm-hmm. that, that gives me more indication that this squid, this, this influencing invasive force is figment with a capital F with that in, within those conversations, there's also like mention of the bone rider. Yeah. So I don't know. There's a lot of, there are so many different like connecting threads here and I wish I could really dig into all of them, but I feel like I hit most of the main ones. Yeah, there, there are literally so many different balls up in the air that there's no real one that seems the most, I don't know, proper path to head down, if that makes right. sense. Like there's, exactly. it is a tough call to figure out which direction this is all moving in. Yeah. So with that, we are done with the reading for the week. Wow. Uh, again, wow. I predicted this on the outset, looking at the notes ahead of time, but I was like, this is going to be a long episode. Um, yeah, we are at uh, well over three hours right now. Recording. 310, and we still have a little bit more to go. So with that, let's go into PJ's predictions. So your first one up here is will Lyria retain full control of her thoughts or will the squid take over some function? You said? Um, I think this is going to be a really slow takeover. I think for now she will maintain all of her conscious thoughts and interaction with her, like within her body. I think there will be some conscious interaction with the squid, but I don't think the squid squid will have any real control over the physicality of Lyria or whoever she's maintaining herself within. Mm. Cool. Yeah. I, I really like the kind of idea of, uh, especially using the idea of kind of being puppeted, you know, she's still going to retain some agency, but clearly there's going to be some form of internal monologue between the two. Makes sense. Right. Is there an Oscamani mole in the all tribes leadership? You say, uh, yes, and I think there are two of them, and I think those two are Xenophon and Valdir. Okay, yeah, and we kind of, we've gone over some of the reasons for those, but I mean, the big ones yeah. are, of course, the sort of poisoned grog, the aggression, the sort of th- things that were going on with Freyhild that seemed to undermine Xenophon being Xenophon, Xenophon being Xenophon, so yeah, um, Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Is Victra alive is your third prediction. 
Yes, because I don't believe there's any way that she would get into any sort of escape pod without a contingency plan. Like these escape pods are built for situations where the main ship are under attack. To to have an escape pod without any sort of plan for getting out of it if it gets shot down or compromised in any sort of way seems really, really foolish. So Yeah, and it also doesn't seem like a victory thing, plus the fact that the other two survive also point me a gr- similarly in you know, a direction you know that just logically makes sense for victra so i'm right. just gonna drink for this one right now just kidding <laughs> so that is it for pj's predictions uh last thing before we talk about what we're gonna be reading next week is this last question of the week so last week's question of the week is you know we wanted to hear from you what's your favorite moment of rest given in a story and why and we got a whole lot of different notes on stories but we didn't get wise on things so i'm left to infer a couple of these so i'm just gonna i'm gonna riff a little bit and we'll try to riff to like make sense of why some of these make sense as long as we know you know if you don't know don't worry about it but uh the first one up here is yours from ivana on our discord harry ron and hermione 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 (laughs) oh my god I mean, it is it is written that way. <laughs> Which, it's Hermione, right? Hermione, but that's yes. I don't know. Fuck you. Her that's that's how Hermione is spelt. Hermione. <laughs> I hate you. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> it, yes, it's it's spelled Hermione, but it's not. <laughs> I gave you the crew the crew at number 12 Grimwald place in the Deathly Hollows is her answer yeah which is obviously I think it's actually a great respite a number of times across the back three books of the series um, ever since it was introduced so uh, yeah number 12 Grimwald place I totally agree and I think that it's a great point of respite across every book for harry at the very least from the fifth book on because for him he obviously feels that connection to his godfather which is a big deal for him so Mm -hmm. totally get that from lexi moralgia on instagram i i love i absolutely love your answer that you provided for us but i can't talk about it on air quite yet um it happens within dark age Actually, both of them that you mentioned happen within Dark Age, but <laughs> anything that's a future spoiler prevents us from chatting too much about it. So I can't ruin the books here for Peach, of course, but just know, nod, wink, I understand exactly what you're talking about, and I enjoy your perspective. Thank you, Crossland, for uh, for protecting me from spoilers. Insulating you. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And we'll continue onward. I'm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You don't get I'm so excited for you to butcher the pronunciation of this next thing. Uh, Team Pyerson, who says that... uh, (laughs) (laughs) You got this one? Uh, I believe in you. Eolian? A little bit more chutzpah. Eolian? Eolian? Yeah, I'd probably say something like that. I don't actually know how it's said. I just figured you were going to say it like you said. <laughs> Her- Hermie one. <laughs> the. <laughs> Eolian. <laughs> like, the, but it might actually the be. The Eolian in the Kingkiller co- Chronicle. 
How did Chronicle be the like most difficult part of that? <laughs> um, I don't I don't know what that means. <laughs> this is why the why is important because we want to know why that this is one of your favorite things. Um, not not again any of your fault, but just a little bit. So neither of us have actually read this, so neither of us can riff on it. At team all. Team Pyerson, if you're listening, um, oh let us know. <laughs> I hate you. So, um, next one from Sharkbait out of A Court of Thorn and Roses, the townhouse in Valeris. And I cannot help but agree with you. I think this is a great moment of respite. I don't necessarily want to get into it because of uh, some plotty reasons. But again, most stories, most folks, feel free to write in your why. I just don't want to expose plot points for you in an undeft way for other people. So, thank you so much for that one. Love it. Of course. Unless We've I have got- the wrong Valeris. I assume that's the correct Valeris, but that was my assumption. We've got one from Sushi Western on Instagram, right? Yep. Any humor, especially if the story has a lot of heartbreaking moments. So, Sushi, in my in my head, I totally agree with you. Uh, I think that any moment of humor or levity inside of a story can be like very... It can it can be a moment of respite. It can provide that moment, even if they're in the worst of circumstances. I really think, um, and I won't get too specific here because eventually we will be reading some some works by this author. But I think Joe Abercrombie actually does a really great job adding levity and making it feel like you're taking a break, even when some of the characters are under incredible stress. You know that they're not going to have to deal with for days or hours or what have you. You you still get those you know nice moments of relief. Mm-hmm. Um, next up and last of the week before we talk about our own artificer from patreon said rivendell and i can very easily picture like i this is almost like i I don't need a why because if i think about rivendell i just think about peace like this is this is the moment before everything ramps up in terms of you know seriousness this is a moment in which we get to kind of reflect on the journey ahead and we get to think and talk about the planning and you know, to me, Rivendell makes sense and is kind of the yeah. prime example. We even used, you know, Lord of the Rings talking about it a little bit last week. So, yep. makes so, sense. Rivendell, to be straight up, was my choice. Uh, but Artificer got it first. And I <laughs> talked about Lord of the Rings last week. So, <laughs> I felt like I needed to <laughs> not not do that. So, so what's yours? Uh, mine is a little bit more silly and a little <laughs> bit more fun. It is the Winchester within Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> <laughs> so th- there's a couple reasons. One, it is a great break intention. It's their goal for the first part, the first like major bit of tension of them trying to get away from the zombies. They get into the Winchester. But also on top of that, it keeps getting called back to as their ultimate goal of survive this, get get shit done go have a pint in the Winchester. Like it's, it's just constantly being referred to as their ultimate goal of comfort and respite, even, even after their break within it. So, um, not the same weight as a lot of the other examples, but it's the one I thought of when I, when I realized I couldn't use Rivendell. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no I, I think it's a good one too because i think that it a like it's interesting because they the reason you asked me is like is this a good one and i was like yeah of course it's a good one not only is it like a good 
you know, moment to like kick off the movie with. But it also sets up the goal that after all of this action comes rest, you know, so it's mm-hmm. it's got a good, good kind of tone to it. I don't know. I, I like it. I think yeah, it's good. Fair. Uh, what about you? I think you're the last one. Yeah, I, I've got a lot that were kind of swimming around in my head, but I really like I think one of the best executions of this in my mind is very near the end of the book Recursion. Um, the main mm. character is spending some time kind of reflecting on life that he's led so far, to to put it without spoiling anything, and um, spends a lot of time kind of reflecting and, and watching videos um, from the past with his wife. It's a very somber. I think it's more somber than kind of restful in a lot in a lot of ways. But I, I, it it just has this similar sort of feel to it to me that I I think of whenever I think of those moments of respite and reflection, which I I think is really what you get from these sort of moments of rest. So that's yeah. mine for this week. I think that fits. Okay. Yeah, it does. So certainly. Cool. So for next week, PJ, what's our question we're asking people next week? Um, next week is, uh, what is your favorite horrific creature and why? Yeah. So within, within fiction, right? Yeah. Well, I guess within reality, you can, don't give me, don't give me chupacabra bullshit. (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) Bullshit. Okay. Well, you know what I mean? (laughs) No. All right. Fictional horrific creatures and why you love them. With that next week, we'll be talking about chapter 51 through 58 oh my gosh we've got another 61 pages next week it's gonna be a good time i'm very excited to kind of talk through that's where we'll leave you for the week (laughs) fuck you crossland uh (laughs) i would like to thank our producers tim and andrew for helping keep our show's lights on check out our the all all of the wonderful wonderful well put together links in the show notes you can find our schedule, our Patreon, our previous episodes, our website, our social media contacts, and our probably most of our like livelihood in one <laughs> convenient spot. <laughs> yes, uh, wordsandwhiskey.com forward slash links is very, very useful for literature. Sorry, not wordsandwhiskey.com, wordsandwhiskey.show forward slash links. Very useful to get anywhere and everywhere that you might listen to us or want to interact with us. Um, literally everything. So we this month have a brand new patron, Thomas Boomhauer. Thank you for supporting us, man, uh, at the Mixologist here, you know, joining us for live interactions and things like that. And thanks, of course, for having us on your show. Uh, you know, the, the check out check out High Key Obsessed. He is uh he's the host there, and we've been on his show twice. Yeah. It's been great. Always a great time. times. So much fun. Mm-hmm. Love that dude. So Without great, a doubt. To, great to see you within our community and uh, interacting. A lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks, man, for all the support in every way, shape, and form. So if you want to be like Thomas, join our Patreon, of course. <laughs> if you want to support us, uh, you can't be like Thomas, but you can be as cool as Thomas. No, you can't be as cool as Thomas. That That's not that's not fair thank you so much for the support it means the world to us we're stoked of course and can't wait to see you next week 